The Secrets of Star Trek is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to The Secrets of Star Trek, Episode 79. Captain DeBridge. Spock here. Make it so. Surrender is not an option. Attention crew of the Enterprise, this is James Kirk. We are all explorers, driven to know what's over the horizon, what's beyond our own shores. We would have helped you get home if you had asked. That's who Starfleet is. Hi, I'm Dom Bettinelli, and you're listening to The Secrets of Star Trek, where we discuss the hidden layers and deeper meaning found in all the Star Trek TV series, movies, and more. And today we're discussing the original series episode, Charlie X. Today on the panel are Jimmy Aiken. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. And Father Corey Stika. Hi, Father Corey. How's it going? Very well, thank you. Uh, People remember to like The Secrets of Star Trek on Facebook, where we're facebook.com slash starquestmedia, and retweet it on Twitter, where we're at SQPN. Uh, Leave us comments and do all that social media engagement that helps us get our content in front of the people who actually ask for it and help us get around those algorithms. Uh, we really do appreciate it when you, en- and we love to have actually conversations with you uh, when you engage with us on social media and, and have that feedback. We, that's just another opportunity for us to to get to know our listeners uh, like you. So we would love for you to, to, to see us on social media. So we're talking about this first season episode. Charlie X aired uh, July of 2000, not 2000, July. <laughs> 19. Of, yeah. It's actually September of 1966. I, I, I misread it. The remastered version aired in July 2007, but the uh, original was September of 1966. It was the seventh episode of the first season produced, but it was the second aired. And we can go into that in a second. The basic plot, you probably know it <laughs> if you're a Star Trek fan. The Enterprise takes on board 17-year-old Charles Evans, who was being transported after he spent 14 years alone on a deserted planet, uh, but his inability to reintegrate with humanity is compounded by some very unhuman powers. So, uh, it's interesting about this uh, He was story. raised by wolves with superpowers. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Uh, so the story started with a one-sentence synopsis by Gene Roddenberry that he wrote on the first page of his original outline for Star Trek The Series. And he called it the day Charlie became God, hmm. and it's an it, it's an interesting idea that it, it sounds a lot like a lot of science fiction from the golden age of sci-fi, the fifties and sixties. Sounds a lot like Gene Roddenberry's God fixation. Yeah, right. Because basically, what it was, Charlie and that was an adult, and he acquired during the course of the episode superpowers. So it was basically Bruce Almighty, but not played for comedy. <laughs> right, right. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the reasons it aired first. Uh, or second, I'm sorry, after the after the uh, premiere, was it It was a bottle show, as we've talked about before. It all takes place yep. on board the Enterprise, so there's no exterior shots, there's no, there's not a lot of um, uh, special effects that had to be done, so they, it got done faster. It was done before all of the other episodes that had already been shot, and, uh, and so they, they wanted to get it out there early. I think also they were there was some concern on the part of NBC about having this teen angst drama 
here, here early on in the series with it would bias people against Star Trek. So uh, that's it's an interesting little interplay there. They also wanted a monster in the first episode aired, which is why we got uh, the Salt Vampire episode first. Right, right, right. The man trap. Uh, although if you uh, if you watch uh, this episode now on streaming, for instance, you'll say, "Oh no, there was an exterior shot. There was the the Antares, the transport ship that we see uh, mm-hmm. flying next to the Enterprise." But that actually was added for the new DVD production when all the new ah. special effects were added. Yeah, so that that was new. What what I like about this episode is it's by DC Fontana yes. and Dor- yeah. Dorothy Fontana. She was. Uh, she was a television writer and script editor for Star Trek, and she is one of the best. She is just yes. really good. Anything right. Dorothy Fontana does and allows her name to be put on <laughs> is is going to be uh, is going to be good. Um, there have been some things in Star Trek that Gene Roddenberry messed with so much that she took her name off of them, yeah. like the naked the naked now. Right. But um, if she lets her name go on something, it's it, this is going to be one of the better things. Well, it's interesting too. She was she was involved even up into the TNG era. So yeah. right, right, yeah. That was uh yes the that was the Naked Now episode and some other things. Right. Uh, w- one interesting aspect of this episode is neither Scotty nor Sulu show up at mm-hmm. all. Mostly asterisk on that. Uh, they do have Kurt when Kirk calls the bridge at one point. He, the, he we get two words f- using uh, George Takei's voice, and that that's taken from another episode. Yeah. I noticed that in the in the audio in the subtitles for this episode, it just said, when he Kirk calls the bridge, it just says "man responds." Yeah. But it's like, come on, that's clearly Sulu. Yes, yeah. So, uh, but that th- that was the he he wasn't actually they they took that from one of the other episodes. I forget which one uh, that the, that they said it took it from. But uh, so one of the interesting things about this episode is this relationship between Charlie, played very well, I thought, by. Mm-hmm. Um, Oh, I didn't write his name down. I'm looking for it quickly here on the uh, the wiki page. I know, I know who you mean, and in, I read that he was a method actor, and so to maintain his aloof, awkward Charlie Evans persona, yeah, he would like just go into his dressing room and not interact with anybody when he wasn't on set, so he couldn't <laughs> bond with people. Robert Walker is the actor. Yeah, yeah. And he's one of those Hollywood seventeen-year-olds, meaning he's really like twenty-five or something, right? Yeah, yes, he was. Yeah, mid twenties when when they filmed this. Uh, and I, I, I thought it was a very well done portrayal. The awkwardness, the you know, not only is he an awkward adolescent, he's an awkward adolescent who didn't really have people to interact with, right? Uh, in growing up. Now, obviously, uh, you know, in reality, even if he had these computers to 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 look mm-hmm. at to find out what how people would you know being left alone at four he would be feral i mean i'm sorry he's he's not going to be anywhere near complete as he is now i i see this i think this is an interesting point because you know he was allegedly everyone died when he was three so he's been alone for 14 years which is the vast majority of his life and Spock is immediately all over this kid. There's no way this kid survived on his own. Right. Mm-hmm. And and that's true given 20th century technology. Right. But with 23rd century technology, I'm not so sure. Like, the two things they talk about is how did he get food? How did he learn to talk? And Charlie says, well, initially food banks, you know, were on the ship. And when they ran out within a year or something, he started to find other food. 
Now, they later say there's no way he did that because there's not enough edible plant life on this planet. Right. But he, you know, that's the initial story. Also, he says he learned to talk by talking with the memory banks. And that doesn't sound at all unreasonable to me. I mean, we already have educational software for children now. And by 200 years from now, 250 years from now, we should have computers that have enough AI to be able to realize everybody is dead except for the three-year-old. We need to teach him how to talk and take care of him. Well, if we posit a level of technology from the short trek Calypso, where the computer was was interacting with Cal- with Calypso, the, the the guy in the future. Now there are caveats in that, but just if we if we posit a discovery level of technology, mm-hmm. yeah, I could see that. I suppose that that that's there. It wouldn't be quite the the complete self aware AI like that, but I could still I could see within ten years that there will be educational tools based off of yeah. Google Assistant or Siri or something like that that can help a kid learn how to speak and can correct the child as it's learning. I mean, that, right. that's not that far off, really. Yeah. I mean, even today, we have voice-activated assistants, and I can easily imagine someone saying, let's suppose you have a deaf couple and they have a hearing child. Uh, you know, you might say, Alexa, teach my child to speak or mm-hmm. something yeah. like that. Yeah, yeah, that's true. That's true. Well, and the, incidentally, there is yeah. this is also a, a plot point in John Scalzi's reimagining of Little Fuzzy. Uh, it's a novel called Fuzzy Nation, which is actually really well done. But a plot point in it is there is essentially an iPad with educational software that's designed to teach an illiterate human being how to read interactively. Hmm. hmm but gets used for something very different. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Given, uh, given Scalzi's, uh, yeah. <laughs> Anyways, no need to go too far. <laughs> yeah. So well, the other interesting thing about this episode is this is Kirk's relationship with, with Charlie. He becomes this father figure, um, caring but strong, offering discipline, a very different kind of father figure than you see generally on TV today. You know, but now... Father figures are much more uh, uh, fuzzy, you know, toward toward youngsters. You know that that the caring. I mean, Kirk is is a bit hard, harder on Charlie than than you than you'd see. Now, I'm not saying it's a wrong approach. I'm just saying it's different from what you'd see in TV today. Well, I like how they play it where he was not sure exactly. He didn't want that role, first of all, obviously. You yeah, know? right. But he he didn't know exactly how to play the play that role as father figure either. Much to the amusement of. Of McCoy, yeah, yeah. yeah. he tried to get McCoy to do it. (laughs) It's interesting. Kirk's initial relationship with Charlie is a little similar to how Captain Picard reacts to children. Mm -hmm. He's like he's not comfortable with them. He doesn't want to be in a. He wants to get out of the room. Yes, he wants other people to take care of the children for him. He keeps trying to shove the father figure role off onto McCoy, and McCoy won't take it. Um, he doesn't want, uh, Charlie on the bridge, just like, you know, Picard didn't want Wesley on the bridge. And so there's a, it's interesting. There's a good bit of Picard father avoidance behavior going on with Kirk here. Right. So the, the episode begins with, you know, uh, these, these, uh, and the Antares cargo ship folks who discovered Charlie on the, on the planet, uh, giving him, you know, bring him over to the enterprise in the transporter room. 
And you have this very uh, interesting interaction where Kirk's trying to give him stuff like, hey, you need some entertainment tapes, you need some brandy, you need, you know, anything. We, you know, we're, we're a big, uh, you know, uh, Starfleet ship. We got all kinds of stuff and you guys are just a little cargo ship. I'm sure you want something. Like, nope, nope, we're fine. We're good. We're going to go now. Oh, Charlie's yeah. the best, by the way. Charlie's awesome. We love Charlie, but we got to go. Uh, very quick <laughs> to get out of there. Uh, it, it, we even see Charlie controlling them at one point, getting yeah. them to be effusive about them. It's it's like in um uh it not seven days in May it's like in the Manchurian Candidate where all the victims of the Kore- North Korean mind control are like oh so and so is the most wonderful caring human being I've ever met <laughs> right <laughs> yes um and we have like Charlie's very concerned or you know early on he's very concerned that people like him he keeps saying that you know um you know I, I just want people to like me do people like me and, he, and he, when he's being examined by by McCoy. You know, we asked McCoy, do you like me? And I like McCoy's answer, which is, why not? <laughs> not yeah, yes. Yeah. It's, why not? Why wouldn't I? Sure. Yeah. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> and then Charlie is having trouble figuring out how people interact with each other. Like, what are the, what the proper way of interacting with people? And so when he sees one crewman, man, interact uh, with another crew man by saying, hey, see you later, buddy, and smacking him on the behind with the back of his hand, uh, he emulates that with janice rand which is uh and he's never seen a girl before i mean he right. even has to ask are you a girl yes yeah. and you know they love it for sight with the with janice and uh it, it's interesting that when she's trying she, she has she can't explain to him why it's wrong she's like that's just wrong and then she recommends that he tell mccoy or kirk what he did and ask them why it's wrong which is i, I like how she includes mccoy in that because yes. that's a, you know, Kirk is not his father. Right. And oftentimes uncomfortable subjects dealing with gender relations would be dealt with by medical professionals. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Um, now I wonder if Spock would have been a good choice as well, you know, as, as a dispassionate no. Vulcan. No. <laughs> I didn't think so. He would, have, he would have explained it better than Kirk did. When Charlie finally asks Kirk about this, Kirk just yeah. fumbles around and can't even say something reasonable like, it's considered culturally inappropriate for a person in our culture to touch a woman without their permission on that part of their body, so don't. <laughs> right, yep. exactly. It would have been perfectly fine for him to say that, but I think it's because Kirk vi- violates that regularly. Well, not just, you know, you, you don't touch them there without permission. You don't hit them ever. Yes. You don't hit girls. Well, it, this is, I mean, this is a swat. I mean, this is a right. not an no, attempt still, to yeah. hurt. It's really in the same category as a touch. Right. Because there's no intent to injure here. Nope. He even, Charlie even uses the exact same line he saw the two crew men use, which was, right. you got a deal, friend, and give them a little playful swat. Right. Frankly, it's a little weird for the guys to do it, but that's okay. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's 19, 1940s, actually. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, Charlie, at, at some point, manages to get Janice's favorite brand of perfume to give to her. And she's like, she asks him, like, where'd you get this? It's not in ship stores. Like, like you're not more suspicious? <laughs> like, yeah. Like, well, like, I mean, she's got other duties she's got to run off and do, so she doesn't have a chance to think about it much. But and he's he's like, it's a gift, as if that explains everything. Yeah. 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 I mean, he does have the social graces to realize it's a gift is a better explanation of where did you get this than I telepathically violated your privacy and then fashioned it so I, I could mm-hmm. hopefully please you. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh. So. 
we do have this scene on the bridge where Kirk is telling McCoy to tell Charlie, uh, I like this the euphemism, about medical knowledge related to adolescence, i.e. Yeah. the birds and the bees. <laughs> have the talk with Charlie. <laughs> <laughs> and then McCoy says, well, don't you think it'd be better for a strong father image like you? He already looks up to you, and Kirk says, the job is yours, Bones. Flattery will get you nowhere. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm the captain. I'm giving you an order. So that, that's good. So Charlie, uh, Spock is convinced. Now, Spock's suspicions are already raised. Charlie was found on this planet, uh, Thasis, uh, Thasia. Yeah. And Thasis is the planet. And so Spock thinks there must be intelligent life on Thasis and thus Thasians. Right. And Thasians were known in legend, but nobody really believes that they existed. But he says Charlie's survival is proof that there must be people on this planet, which is a very interesting, you know, so mm -hmm. like, uh, you know, in sort of in response to what I was saying before, Spock's not, not no dummy. He, he recognizes that Charlie is in, somewhat impossible in a sense. Um, then we have this, this really interesting scene. It's sort of a famous scene in Star Trek in the rec room. Mm -hmm. Spock's playing the Vulcan harp and uh, Uhura starts to sing along her. Her funny song about first about Spock, mm -hmm. really a mocking song. I mean, it's yeah. playful. I mean, yeah. she's she's talking, to, and actually, it's interesting because she's singing about how Mister Spock has this devilish appearance, but he's like really attractive to women and stuff. And this is remarkably astute because Star Trek hadn't even aired yet when when this was filmed, right? And women did swoon over Spock. And so they apparently sensed correctly really early that he's this exoticness he has is going to be compelling to uh, female fans. I do wonder, though, if it was partially a kind of a dig at the NBC executives who said, you know, they gave him the chance for the second pilot, but get rid of the guy who looks like he's the devil, meaning <laughs> right, Spock. Right. And of course, yeah. that's the one figure they didn't get rid of from the original pilot. Right. I, I thought it was interesting. So Uhura is singing this song about Spock and how he's mysterious and attractive, but we know not what he'll do. And then she, when Charlie comes into the room, she mutates the song again in an affectionate way to be about Charlie. And he's seeking his first embrace and we know not what he'll do. And actually, this genre of song is a real thing. There are cautionary tale songs in, as folk tunes. There's one, for example, called The Nutting Girl, which is a British folk tune that is about a girl who goes to gather nuts. And as she is doing so, she overhears the voice of a young farmer who has stopped his plowing to sing a song. And events transpire, and the song ends up warning you that if you go a nutting and you stop to listen to the young farmer, as he sings, you may have a young farmer to raise up in the spring. That's <laughs> <laughs> a cautionary tale. And it, Uhura's song reminded me of that. Yeah, it, and his reaction, you know, Charlie's reaction, is understandable. He's a teenager. Teenagers hate when you pay attention to them, hate when you make them the center of attention by ad adults. Especially on this, this matter where he's interested in Rand, Rand. Rand <laughs> and she explicitly mentions that. Yes, uh, th that's and, and you know if he were a normal teen, he would turn red and yeah. sort of sulk out of the room. But Charlie's not a normal teen, and he d uses some trick to make Yohora lose her voice and the harp as well. Does the harp stop playing? Too? Yeah, because you see, you see uh, Spock uh, looking at it. Oh, you know, right, trying to figure out why it's not playing. Of course, and nobody notices because now he's doing a card trick. 
Right. Mm. He does these impossible card tricks for Janice where he turns cards over and her pictures, her, her the uh, publicity photos. Yeah, publicity yeah. photos from the show, basically, are, I, are on them. I, so he like totally, if he went on Penn and Teller Fool Us, he would totally fool them. <laughs> yeah. Yes, oh, yeah. Would. I mean, the, I, 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 uh, I'm going to say this in code, but I think you're using an ability that maybe you picked up on a, on another planet, maybe <laughs> a little Thasian power. Am I, am I in the ballpark here? Right. Including getting one down her shirt. Like, come on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Like people. <laughs> his, his thing though is, is terrible. Sh- While he would fool Penn and Teller. He he's got bad showmanship because he does his best trick first. It's right. the one where he turns over the cards and it's three different views of Janice, and it's yeah. like that's the big finale, dude. You don't lead with that, right? Right. <laughs> yeah, the one where she pulls the card out of her shirt. Uh, although that's the that's the big finale for a teenage boy, I guess. <laughs> <So>. Exactly. <laughs> I, I find interesting what they have going on in this rec room because it's essentially a cafeteria, but apparently yeah. people hang out here. And they have, so Spock's playing his harp, which kind of would be annoying, but I guess it's socially acceptable in this space. Right. And Uhura is singing, which also, again, would be annoying if other people are trying to do other things, but I guess it's to be expected. If So if you're here, you know there's going to be noise. Mm-hmm. But people are also playing chess and cards, and nobody is looking at a phone or a VR headset. <laughs> <That's> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, and given that there's 400... 28 people on the starship and this rec room could probably hold maybe 30 and it's called rec room six i think that yep. was established mm-hmm. so maybe if you don't like what's going on in one you go to another one and hang out in the yeah. quiet rec rooms or something um so then we have uh charlie encounters kirk in the in the corridor and kirk's telling the chef that if you have to if the crew has to have synthetic meatloaf uh i want it to look like turkey because it's thanksgiving on earth on Earth, whole on Earth. Earth celebrates Thanksgiving on the same day. <laughs> yes. Exactly. Uh, so later Little on, Amer- Americocentric there. Yes, yes. <laughs> uh, later on, the uh, when we have the chef call the bridge to say that the meatloaf in the ovens was magically replaced with tur- real turkeys, the voice of the chef is Gene Roddenberry, and oh. it is the only time Gene Roddenberry acts in any Star That's Trek. That's funny. So next time you'll watch the, hmm. watch this episode, listen for the voice of Gene. Uh, so thought that was I wonder fun. if if he was the back of the head that Kirk was talking to about the meatloaf early on. Uh, it could be because yeah, because he was kind of through a screen or something, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, so you couldn't really see him. Yeah, that's so I interesting. Li- I, I like how when when so uh, you know because of Charlie, weird things are starting to happen. Right, and the turkeys are one instance of that, and yep. in this one. I, I like how as soon as the cook announces over the intercom that it's real turkeys, Charlie like sniggers and walks off. <laughs> yeah, he yeah. Kind of giggles himself. <laughs> uh, that sounds totally like my son would do that. <laughs> he would giggle and walk away. What did you do? Uh, so this is also the scene where Kirk in the hallway where Kirk explains to Charlie why you don't smack a woman on the bottom. Um, <laughs> I like how Kirk... Uh, there are things you can do with a lady that you, um, there's no right way to hit a woman. I mean, man to man is yeah. one thing, but man to woman, well, it's another thing. Do you understand? Yeah, really no. lame explanation. <laughs> yeah. And uh, Kirk is saved by the bell where Yuhura calls that the, the Captain Ramart of the Antares is is calling from his ship. And uh, they get just as he gets to the bridge and they're having trouble getting him in. 
And suddenly I've got to warn. Yes. And the transmission cuts off. Um, and Spock scans it and finds debris from the interior. What, what, I'm picking up debris on the scanners, Captain. What about the Antares? The debris is what's left of the Antares. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah, exactly. And that's when we get the, the chef call. So. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> if they knew that Charlie was this level of threat, that they've got to warn them, why didn't they do it? Before they delivered Charlie to them, I mean, I know they, I know I Charlie's they manipulating them in the, in the. They had to know he's a, he's a threat enough to warn them over a great distance, if in order for them to make this phone call, right? And they had to know that before they gave Charlie over to them, unless some new evidence emerged after he left. But the implication seems to be, since they never mention any such evidence, we're meant to assume they knew Charlie was a big threat at the time they handed him over. And they couldn't, I can understand, you can't tell them that he's this threat when Charlie is standing in the room with you because he's going to mind control you like he does in that Mm -hmm. scene. But you could, like, text him ahead of time and say, we have this guy we found on the planet that we're turning over to you. But you should know a few things about him first. A couple of thoughts on that. You know, first of all, the, he, uh, Charlie mentions later that he was able to control the Antares, but he couldn't the Enterprise. That's why he needed Kirk around, because Kirk controlled the Enterprise. Because there's too many people on the Enterprise. Too many people, too many things that he had to try to control. So, I mean, the, the first thought is that they couldn't warn him in advance because they were already, they were still under his control hmm. when they approached the Enterprise. I mean, I think so, that, that yeah. one's pretty clear by the, the dialogue and everything. My my thought was the only reason why they, they finally did get the warning to the Enterprise by the time they were just about out of range was maybe that was about the point that Charlie lost control of them was right, right mm-hmm. before he destroyed them. It would have been helpful to have a couple lines of dialogue to endorse that theory if, if that's what we're meant to yeah. infer. Right. Although the later on where they talk about his limits, I mean, I, I kind of inferred that back to, to again this, it, it's, yeah. it is inference both of them are, are inference yeah. but i think that it's they're reasonably supported inferences by the the, the plot of the story yeah. I, I like that charlie immediately makes an incriminating remark about how the interiors wasn't well constructed yeah <laughs> like uh why would you say like before anyone knows it's destroyed he kind of says oh that it wasn't it was wasn't well constructed anyway like uh so uh then we get the scene of kirk and spock playing 3d chess our first it was the first aired 3D chess scene, although the, right. they had 3D chess in the first pilot, even. I think Second pilot. Second pilot, yes. Um, and Charlie wants to play Kirk, because he's kind of got this and, attachment to Kirk. And much to the... Yeah, he wants to play Kirk. Kirk shoves him off on Spock. Yeah. And, and Spock is just starting to explain the principles of three-dimensional chess. And to the frustration of 1960s Star Trek fans everywhere, Charlie cuts him off and doesn't let him explain. <laughs> right. <laughs> well... <laughs> And in fact, he kind of just, it's like, yeah, I know what it is. Let's play. Like, Charlie's very rude to Spock in that case. Um, it, I, I like the fact that uh, they establishing this relationship between Kirk and Spock where Spock thinks he's beating Kirk, you know, because it's very logical moves. And like, you know, he thinks Spock, in fact, thinks he's about to beat Kirk. And Kirk just does some unexpected, illogical thing and checkmates Spock. Like, wait a minute. How did yeah. you do that? Mm-hmm. Uh, so, or Spock says, your logical approach to chess does have its advantages on occasion, Captain. So uh, then, then, so Charlie comes in. Spock handily beats him pretty well. 
and like, uh, two, like two moves. Yeah, yeah, like really badly. Uh, yeah, that was a mistake, Charlie. No, it wasn't. Checkmate. No, yeah. it isn't. <laughs> no, then, it's not. And then Charlie melts the white ch- chess pieces, which is Spock's pieces. Yeah, uh, in in a tantrum. So uh, then we have Janice, who you know is trying. She re- recognizes that Charlie's developed his crush on her, and so she's trying to make him find somebody a little more age appropriate for him. Uh, and she gets this Tina, Yeoman Tina, third class. Yeah. She's apparently seventeen. Like yeah, was, apparently they recruit him young. I guess go to the academy when you're fourteen. I guess maybe she's another Wesley Crusher. Oh, well, she could be enlisted. I mean, at this point in Star Trek, we've established that. In fact, in, even in News Trek, she's a yeoman, though. A yeoman is enlisted. In fact, a yeoman is. Are they? Yeah, like in yeah, today's okay. Navy, it's it's a okay. That's an enlisted rate. Um, yeah, and and like uh, in, even in DS Nine, we O'Brien says he's an enlisted. He's not an officer. So, eh, right. so well, I mean, no, I I know that. I just yeah. I I had always thought of Janice Rand as as being an uh, like an ensign level officer or something. No, yeah, no, I, I guess I figure, yeah, she's probably like a, like a chief. If she's the assistant to the captain, she's probably at a, a senior chief level or something like that, or or, or first whatever the 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 equivalent is in Star Trek. But yeah. uh, but historically, there have been you know officers in their teenage years. I mean, historically, midshipmen yep. right, would be right. would be that right in the uh, the the hornblower sort of uh, st- uh, time frame. Uh, so, so, but Janice wants, she, she realizes he's got a crush on her. She doesn't like it. She wants to get him to have, you know, meet some girls his own age. And so there's Tina, but he's in full stalker mode on Janice. And <laughs> boy, isn't he? And he goes off on this whole, I, every time I see you, I feel hungry all over. And I'm like sitting there cringing in my seat. Like, Oh, oh that's totally embarrassing. That, yeah. that had to be the Roddenberry line. I'm sorry. I, I, I felt bad for, well, I thought it was. I think it's Charlie doesn't have the vocabulary to talk about sex yet. Yeah, right. So, you know, um, but but still, so he would talk about it weird. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it was I, a I, weird teenage I, boy. I felt bad for instant for Yeoman Tina. Yes, and she has a really pretty classic seventeen-year-old reaction when she realizes Charlie is not interested in her, but is interested in Janice. It's like, yeah, well, I must be wanted somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You rock on 17 year olds. <laughs> and then, uh, yeah. Um, so Rand goes to Kirk on the bridge, like, uh, I-, I need to talk to you about Charlie. Um, and, uh, she doesn't want to hurt him. She says, you know, if, if something isn't done soon, I'm going to have to hurt him, and, you know, to tell him to leave me alone. And that wouldn't be good for him right and now. And she means with a knife. <laughs> <laughs> hurt him with a knife i'm gonna have to break his fingers if he touches me yeah. again no yeah. <laughs> uh, i'm gonna have to you know hurt his feelings and that wouldn't be good for him right now because i'm his first crush his first love and kirk's like okay okay i'll take care of it i'll look into it and and so to protect charlie from being physically hurt by janice Rand, kirk takes charlie to the gym to teach him to defend himself right <laughs> yeah <laughs> I'm joking, of course, about Rand physically hurting him. Right. It is interesting. He takes him to a self-defense class immediately after she says, I'm going to have to hurt him. Yeah, right. Um, So Kirk has Charlie come to his quarters, and he talks to him. And Charlie does the the, the 17-year-old, you know, the teenager sort of pout. Everything I do or say is wrong. I'm in the way. I don't know the rules. And when I learn something and try to do it, suddenly I'm wrong. I mean, it's so very – you could just lift that out of most – Households that have a teenager. Yep. I mean, that's still the the, the thing. Uh, but Kirk is firm. He's straight with him. 
but he's also compassionate with him. And I, I yeah. really yeah. like this coming out here, this this thing. And so he takes him to the gym. And I like that, too. I like this idea that he takes him to gym. Young men need a physical outlet, especially, yeah. especially at this age. When they're going through things like this, they need to be active. They need to tire themselves out. And so he takes him to the gym. One thing I did kind of laugh, though, that, that conversation about how, you know, how to treat women, Kirk says, you know, you got to go slow, be gentle. It's like, yeah, <laughs> Kirk is exactly not the example of that. <laughs> yes, <laughs> Kirk is uh, not slow uh, in, in, in uh, the ways of love. Uh, yeah, but let- he he does miss a trick here because uh, he takes Charlie to, sure, young men need physical outlets for their uh, adrenaline and everything. But if you want to get the girls, you don't learn to do martial arts. You learn to dance. <laughs> That's oh, right. Oh, there you go. Picard would teach him to dance. That's let's just say yeah. that right off the bat. <laughs> or Riker, you know. Uh, but uh, yeah. Um. So let's. We have to talk about it. Let's talk about the tights. <laughs> oh, not. do we have let's to not talk about the tights? Dude, I hadn't even thought of those. Uh, what oh, I man. focused on was not the tights, but they're wearing black socks with as they're, <laughs> they're at, at, on their feet and it's like you do not do martial arts in slippery black socks that's incredibly dangerous right yeah. right uh, but I, I like the idea that kirk is teaching him how to fight how to how to take a fall how to you know all yeah. the sorts of things that a young man needs to know you know like which is kind of funny but uh, it's it's it, it's an interesting scene and uh, the scene of the gym where this guy this sam this other crewman is doing something to these handles on the wall which like they move about three inches i don't know what they do for you but they like they move back and forth three some inches. kind of resistance training yeah. yeah but kirk you know he gets charlie to think okay try to throw me to the floor and charlie can't of course and in fact uh kirk throws him um and this other crewman sam laughs he's like and you know oh you know yeah charlie you're learning a lesson we all learn sort of a good-natured laugh but of course charlie doesn't take it that way and makes Sam disappear. He vanishes him, to use the stage magic term. Yes. Um, now, Kirk doesn't say, bring him back. <laughs> he he just tells Charlie to go with security to his quarters and stay there. Well, and he then, does ask first, says, where is he? And he's gone, He's like, yeah. I'm not going to tell you. Right. And, um, and, and so this is the moment where Kirk realizes that Char- Charlie can send people to the cornfield. Mm. Right. So he tells Charlie, you know, go with these security guys and stay there. And when Charlie refuses, Kirk says, go or I'll carry you there, which is a, a, a kick, the firm father figure again. Yeah. And Charlie backs down because, you know, what, what di- disobedient boys need is a dad who's strong and doesn't back sends down. Them to, sends them to their room. Sends them to their room. And Charlie goes to his room. Because Charlie may be 17-year-olds physically, but obviously he's about developmentally about 11. You know, yeah, I was going to say way. 12. Yeah. yeah. Also, it's interesting in this scene, we start, the director starts uh, using Bella Lugosi lighting mm-hmm. on Charlie's oh, eyes right. and on Kirk's eyes even. Yeah. This this where you just, hi- everything is, they kind of highlight the eyes. Uh, the, yep. the rest of the face is still, is sort of dark, and but the eyes are highlighted in that dramatic, I'm, I'm being very serious way that yeah, Bella Lugosi films had. Mm. Um and then Charlie you know, throws the security guys, the red shirts, around, and one of them pulls his phaser uh, awkwardly, I have to say. <laughs> I don't yeah. know if you noticed that, how, how poorly he gets that, his hand on that thing. Uh, he makes a phaser disappear. And in fact, Yohora tells Kirk that all the phasers on board have disappeared, which seems Oops. to be a, I would head to Starbase right away to get restocked on that. There might be Klingons <laughs> hanging around, so we've got to be careful. 
Well, there's something off the starboard bow. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, Spock uh, tells Kirk that Thasians were rumored to have powers like these, and McCoy says Charlie is, is human because the development of his fingers and toes exactly matches those of man's on Earth. And I'm thinking, what? I I'd love that. That's so... Pr <laughs> I mean, come on. The DNA. double helix had already <laughs> been discovered. You could easily appeal to his DNA. Yeah. His fingers and toes, that's, you know, that's macroscopic morphology. There could be... I mean, that's not proof. It's it's in the right. genes. Like, Klingons have the same fingers and toes, yeah. right? <laughs> well, we don't see Klingon toes, so maybe those are weird, but uh, who knows? Yeah, very... Uh, I thought that was a funny 1960s bit of medical response. Um. And and Charlie is a boy in a man's body with a mass weapon of mass destruction in him, uh, mm -hmm. and that's this is the crux of our of our problem of our story here. And what do you do with him? I mean, it's he's like unstable TNT or unstable nitroglycerin, and they have to mm -hmm. treat him with kid gloves, literally, try to uh, placate him while trying to solve the problem of Charlie. And that's that's yeah. that's the crux. Kirk realizes they can't take him to Colony Five like they were planning because. You know, can you imagine what would happen in an right. uncontrolled environment? You know, yes. Um, and Spock tells Kirk that the struggle has to be between Charlie and Kirk because Charlie respects Kirk. Kirk's the only one he's shown that he respects and will listen to at this point. And then Kirk blows it by in a conversation with Charlie where he asks Charlie, "Did you do the Antares?" And Charlie acknowledges that he did he made yes. he, he vanished a warp baffle plate that caused the ship to explode and kirk says what about us charlie and charlie says i don't know and it's like <laughs> dude really bad tactics do not <laughs> yes. raise the question of your own destruction in his mind if it's it, yep. if it's not already there you don't want to plan it and if it is already there you don't want to foster it don't, don't never never mention to a child anything you're not prepared to address. <laughs> don't no open ended that's, questions. That's, that's kind of like the the don't touch that, which of course to the kid all they hear is touch that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. Uh, so back on the bridge, Kirk, uh, you know, wants the you heard a call, Colony Five, and talk so he can talk to the governor there, and he orders the navigator to change course away from Colony Five so they can buy more time. But Uhura is electrocuted by the board when she tries to 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 make the call. And for the once, there's respond. a good reason for a control panel to go up in a shower of sparks on the bridge. <laughs> right, right. Yep. She's she's not hurt, uh, but Charlie uh, comes on the bridge and turns Spock into a, a doggerel spouting uh, puppet, that, which is very amusing to him. With different bits of poetry, some real, some science fiction imaginary. Yeah, there's a and tiger tiger does... burning bright in the forest of the night. Yep, that's the first one. And then he's got this something about Saturn's rings around my head as I walk down a road that's Martian red, which is terrible. <laughs> yeah. And then he's the got a one third is, one that's actually yeah. from history. Yeah, the Tiger one is from is a poem by William Blake. So Right. Um, and then, of course, McCoy comes to the bridge because Spock was calling McCoy for, uh, from Uhura and <laughs> started spouting poetry, weird poetry. So McCoy's like, what's going on up there? I'm going to go check it out. Um. So they uh, once upon a midnight jury while I ponder weak and weary. That's yeah, Shakespeare. the Raven by the by oh, Edgar Allan Poe. Poe. Right, right, Poe. That's yep. what I meant. Of course, I, I know my difference between Poe and Shakespeare. Um, so so Kirk confronts uh, Charlie, and so and Charlie backs down. He leaves the bridge, but in the alone, so he can wander to do his damage at will. He he turns the cute Yomantina into an iguana. 
into a chirping iguana. Apparently, people in the 1960s didn't know that iguanas don't chirp. But I felt <laughs> yeah. so bad for Yeoman for Yeoman Tina. She get she becomes this iguana. I'm ho- I think, and I'm yeah. sure in iguana yeah. language, she's saying, "I'm sure I must be wanted somewhere." <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, then he goes. He goes into uh, uh, Janice's room, uh, and as he's confronting her, she's she turns on the surreptitiously uh, turns on the comm to alert Kirk, uh, who goes with Spock to the quarters. And when Spock and Kirk are thrown into the wall by Charlie, I notice telekinetic, telekinetically, telekinetically, yeah. Uh, yep. Nimoy leaves this giant hole in the set, obviously flimsy set wall. I don't know if you guys caught that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I saw that. <laughs> I was yep. like, oh, man. <laughs> Somebody had to rebuild that between takes. And Spock says that his legs are broken. Mm-hmm. Right. And Charlie apparently then heals them, although they don't make that explicit. Yeah. Right. And, and, well, and Janice slaps Charlie, and he makes her disappear, too. And I'm thinking, this is the second time in the beginning of this season that Janice Rand is assaulted by a sex fiend in her quarters. Yeah. I mean, if I were the actress, I'd be a little bit miffed at, like, is my character now just going to be the object of these assaults <laughs> as for all my time on this series? I mean, that's a really weird... So what you know, was... I'm, I'm not remembering the first one. What was the first oh, one? Mirror, mirror, uh, when, when the enemy within, when Kirk split. Oh, the, right, uh, yeah. Bad okay. Kirk. Uh, I, was, I was thinking about the Salt Vampire episode because you do have the salt vampire at one point uh, as a as guy this, yeah as, as a man but it that's actually uh he's coming on to uhura to get her salt right that's uhura yeah no there was the one where bad kirk assaults assaults right. uh, janice yeah. i mean it just it's it's a little weird that we have two of these and you know where where she's the object of this uh yeah deranged sexual desire uh so mm. it, it's kind of weird anyway um Charlie, we we discovered that, as we said before, Charlie, the Enterprise is too big, too complicated for Charlie to control it like he did the Antares. So he, <clears throat> excuse me, he needs Kirk to run the Enterprise uh, to keep it under control. And so he needs to control Kirk. Uh, they, they have this really bad attempt where they try to put him behind a force field, but he ends he, up just making the wall he, disappear. He just vanishes the whole wall, including the force yep. field generator. <laughs> yes. Uh, then he goes on a rampage turning one crewman into an old woman and then he makes these other laughing crewmen their faces go away now i have to say this when i was a kid mm-hmm. was really creepy this one yeah, stuck with yeah. me i had it, nightmares we, about that we don't even see these people we just see their shadows on the wall as right. charlie is walking by and they're laughing and charlie is in a bad mood so he tells him to stop laughing and then we hear this muffled screaming Yes. And then one woman comes around the corner and she's got no face, which implies because that's where your air holes are. Yeah. These people all suffocated to death. Yeah. By the time the Thasians came around to save everybody, spoilers, uh, these people (laughs) would have been dead. Yeah. That's really. Presumably the Thasians bring them back to life because they say everybody's fine. But these people went through suffocation and death. Yeah. That yeah, that was really creepy to me. Uh, uh, now looking at the at the high def version of this, you see it's obviously this foam over their face or you know this like nylons yeah. or something whatever bad makeup. Yeah, yeah, but but as a kid, that was really creeped me out. Uh, so and it's very Twilight Zony the things yes. that are happening at this point in the episode. Now I mean, That's it is like definite. it's a good life where Billy Moomy is wishing people into the cornfield. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> uh, so th- I wonder. 
is this a part of a, the '60s sort of reaction to the youth movement? The like the people, uh, older people being afraid of young people. Do you think that's part of that cultural moment? Well, we're in the before 60s? the summer of love at this point, so yeah. But I mean, you know, there were tremors leading up to that, but I don't know. Right. It's it's, it's interesting. I mean, there was this there was this point in which there was like young people were saying, "Don't trust anyone over thirty five and there was mm-hmm. this whole division between, uh, you know, adults and young people that See, had this, developed the so-called generation gap. Yeah. yeah, this seemed more just uh, just starting from the basic premise of what would happen if you were seventeen years old with all the confusion and everything going on, and now you're a superpower. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that, that's basically what this this seems like at this point because he's having a seventeen year old temper tantrum, right? At this point, he's essentially a, a unlimited Harry Potter with a with a complex. Yeah. So, it's a lot like Katie Kaboom. Katie, which one's Katie Kaboom? That's from the Animaniacs. You have a uh, family with teenage daughter Katie, who every so often goes kaboom and turns into a giant monster of one sort or another. I have to admit, that I I totally missed the Animaniacs. Uh, oh, you need to you need to watch yeah. the Animaniacs. Yes, okay. you do. All right, I, I, that's on the list then. Uh, so. Kirk realizes that Charlie's total control of the ship may be taxing his powers, and so he plans to push his limits and distract him so that McCoy can then sedate him by turning on everything. I'm not sure why that would, like, why would that distract him? Like, why would he have to control everything if if they turn on all the equipment? It's very, it's kind of weird. I, I think the implication is that he's in some kind, I mean, he's in direct control of the machinery of the ship. That's why he blocked uhura from being able to call colony five it's why he prevented the navigator from inputting new coordinates and it's also why he's blocking uhura's ability to hear a message that is coming in so he's physically in control of machinery from the ship right so the idea is you turn on more machinery it makes the situation more complex for him to try to deal with Okay. And he's already admitted that he can't control the Enterprise, that it's too complex for him with the crew members and the, the equipment and everything that's on the ship. It's too complex yeah. for him. So right. he needs the human crew to run the Enterprise for him because he can't do the whole ship itself, which is part of why I my cons, my question about why didn't the Antares crew text Kirk about this guy? Because if it was the machinery of the Antares that he was running— that would have let the crew have enough liberty to be able to send a message because we never see him control a human being for more than a few seconds. It's not like he makes them all their mind slaves. Uh, it makes the whole crew his mind slaves. He just like focuses on Spock and makes him recite poetry or focuses on the two Antares crewmen and make them spout praise about him. Right. Beyond that, he doesn't seem to be able to manipulate people significantly. It's it be, it's just this brute, clumsy way of doing it. Right. Because if he could manipulate people mentally in a sophisticated way, Janice Rand would love him, and there would be mm-hmm. no problem. Right, right. May, or yeah, yeah, uh, and yeah. Sam well, would not also, laugh at him and all that. Well, there's stuff. also the, just the fear of him. I think in general, they. I think yeah, maybe they had to overcome their fear of him to feel like they were far enough away. That there could be no yeah. retribution when they did finally tell Kirk. It could which, be. In which case they miscalculated. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So Kirk, uh, we're back on the bridge, and Kirk sees Charlie sitting in his seat and throws him out of the chair because, you know, <laughs> <laughs> it's my seat. 
and uh, and McCoy and Spock turn everything on that they can, and suddenly his control, his hold is over. The Thasians have shown up. They have come to save the day, and yep. uh, and a giant green head appears on the bridge. The, the Wizard of Oz shows up. Yeah, yeah. Deus Ex Machina. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We have the Wizard of Oz is here. Uh, behold, the Wizard. Uh, oh, and Ray, they bring Janice back. Yeah, in her in her nighty on the bridge. Oops. Uh, but do they bring back Sam? That's the question. Hopefully they, they did. Yeah, they say all of your crew is fine. We couldn't help the Antares crew. They'd been dead too long, I guess, but or too atomized. Yeah. But um, they say that everyone on the Enterprise is okay now. So Sam got back. Apparently there's meatloaf again for Thanksgiving. Right. And uh, Charlie Charlie pleads with the Enterprise crew to, you know, don't let them take me away. I can't even touch them. They don't know what it is to love. Um, and Kirk has this choice that he's got to make. You know, can he take Charlie at his word that he'll be good? I won't do it again. Or should he let him go to this terrible fate? And, well, yeah. And Kirk argues he should be with his own kind. Yeah. And the big green head says that, he, and, and maybe we can teach him not to use his power. And the big green head says we, we gave him the power so he could live. He will always use it. And he will either destroy your kind, mm-hmm. so we're talking genocide, yep. or you will have to destroy him if he goes with you. Right. And the, I mean, the, the Thasians ultimately here were kind to Charlie. They saved yeah. him. They gave him the ability to survive, and they're saving him again, and they're, they've followed up. You know, we... we they had gone out for dinner and come back and Charlie was gone. Like, oh, yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, you know, not you don't pay attention to this kid for five minutes and he's out the door. <laughs> and uh, that's nothing in my own personal experience. Let me just put it that way. <laughs> but it is in other experiences in which, including another episode, we will have this season of Star Trek, the original series, where an mm. alien juvenile, alien empowered juvenile escapes the attention of its parents for a while. Right. The Squire of Gothos. Uh, but... So it's 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 I don't envy Kirk this decision he had to make. I mean, I, I'm not sure he actually was given a choice. Uh, no. He tries to do the right thing to save Charlie uh, from this fate, but you know, there's nothing he can do, and they take him away. And it's really it, it's a it's a sad story at the end. I mean, it, this poor it kid. Is. Yeah, it's really pitiful in the proper sense of it invokes one's pity. Right when Charlie is, is suddenly begging the Enterprise crew, to let him stay. He says, I can't even touch them. Janice, they can't feel. They don't love. I want to stay. And he freezes. And the word stay is elongated as he fades out of existence as he's transported onto the alien ship. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's, he's, again, like I said, he's essentially like an 11, 12-year-old boy in this this 17-year-old body. And yeah, yeah, and it's just, it's very sad. It's, I mean, and I, I got I give kudos to Star Trek. I mean, right off the bat, they went there with this. They were they weren't afraid of having this story that pulls at the heartstrings and make it does it doesn't have a happy ending. Uh, yeah. for Janice, Charlie. Janice sniffles, and we don't get the clarinet of humor at the end. We have a downbeat ending in the second episode. Right. Yep. Right. And and yet, and I think that's one of the reasons why fans connected with Star Trek because it's respected them enough to to mm-hmm. to say you know you could deal with a sad ending. And we've all been, at least those of us who are older than 17, we've all been 17. Right. We've all been through that time of life. We all know how hard it is, and we can all totally sympathize with with Charlie and with Yomantina Lizard. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Poor poor Yomantina. 
Uh, although I feel I feel worse for Yeoman Crewman uh, No Face or Crewman No Face. Yeah. Oh boy, suffocating to death and then being brought back. Wow, what a day! <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that that's why I think after that they had ship's counselors because <laughs> you're gonna need <laughs> some. <laughs> boy, yay. Anyway, all right. So, any last thoughts on this episode uh, before we go? Father, well, the only thing I could say, you know, I, I've mentioned before, I haven't watched a lot of TOS, so it's it, it's oh. interesting to go back through some of these episodes like this and. You know, there, there there are parts of this episode I really did like, you know, some of the stuff we talked about. But that being said, I really could have done without the musical interlude. Yeah, the cringy 60s music. <laughs> I just and, and I know this is something that comes up again and again, though it is interesting. You know, I was thinking about it here this morning of now I see where that little scene in Star Trek five where she does a little song and dance to tempt the right. guy. Now I see where it comes from, because when I right. saw that, of course, watching this, the, the movies without having seen this. The TOS itself, it's like, why is she doing this little song and dance thing? <laughs> well, oh, I see. It's because Nichelle, uh, Nichelle Nichols is a singer, and she wanted she's, something interesting to do to show off her talents in order to oh, agree to do Star Trek V. She's right. a very, well, she's a very, yeah, she's obviously a very talented singer. I mean, that's, that's no argument there. I just still could have done without it. <laughs> yeah, it's very much of its I, time. I, I, I like it. Um, I mean, I, I understand, and there is a cheese factor to it, but I like this flavor of cheese because it shows the human interaction between her. I mean, she's a beautiful woman. She has a beautiful voice. She is being playful with mm-hmm. Mr. Spock, and he, she's clearly, you know, taking the wind out of his sails a little bit because every time she... It delivers a line he like winces a little bit as mr uncomfortable vulcan and so you have this <laughs> right. nice playful aspect to their relationship which we see on other occasions too um you know like when she's talking to spock on the bridge about tell me what the moon is like on vulcan vulcan has no moon mr spock i am not surprised you know <laughs> and and she she hums and sings in other episodes and i just like seeing that it's a nice it's nice bits of characterization for uhura in an age that didn't give the supporting cast as much of a chance to explore right. their characters as we might have today. So I like right. seeing those flashes. Okay. I also like seeing all of the extras in the hallways because this is first season track when they could afford extras. Yeah, exactly. Right, that right. won't be the case in third season. No, that ship <laughs> is, a, is a ghost land, a ghost, a ghost town. Uh, one a little bit, uh, the director of this episode, was uh, his name is Lawrence Dobkin. He later uh, guest stars on TNG as a Klingon ambassador in an uh, episode called The Mind's Eye, where it turns out he's Ooh. a Romulan spy. But uh, that, that was interesting little interesting. Bit, uh, a note there. Um, so anything else uh, we want to say? I think, I think that does about, about does it. So we do want to take a moment to thank our patrons who make it possible for us to create the secrets of Star Trek, including Tammy L., Kevin G., Colleen R., Evan S., and Marika D., their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue The Secrets of Star Trek and all the shows at StarQuest. You can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. And we'd also like to thank Victor Lambs, who edits the show every week. So that's it from us. What do you think of Charlie X? You can let us know by commenting on the show at sqpn.com slash trek or our Facebook page at facebook.com slash Media or send us an email to trek at sqpn.com. And we'll be back next time when we'll be discussing 
the animated series episode, One of Our Planets is Missing. Did you check under the couch? They're always in the last place you look for them. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Until then, Father Cory Stika, thank you for joining me in sharing the secrets of Star Trek. Thank you, Dom. Jimmy Aiken, thank you as well. Thanks, and live long and prosper. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to the secrets of Star Trek on StarQuest. And remember, I can make you all go away anytime I want to. 